May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So lately, I have been looking at Amazon Prime TV, and I have been getting some ads for a show called Tribunal. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it features three judges hearing some rather extraordinary family problems cases. It is a spin-off of a more popular 25-year running TV show that you might have heard of, Judge Judy. <laughs> so Judge Judy, if you aren't aware of her, is known for her tough, no-nonsense demeanor, but also for the ridiculous, you can't make this up kind of cases that she heard. It was a very intense family drama mediation series as Judge Judy was a former family court judge. So when I think about dysfunctional families, and then I look at today's passage from Genesis, I think, hmm, who is more dysfunctional than the family of Jacob? Remember, we heard about him two weeks ago. He was the kind of man that came out grabbing his brother's heel. He was conning him out of his inheritance, and he was stealing his father's blessing from him. And so today, we're going to hear more about Jacob's family. He has returned to Canaan after a 20-year sojourn at Haran in Mesopotamia, and he has managed to circumvent attempts at retaliation from his brother Esau, and even managed to find reconciliation with him. But despite him having a new name, Israel, and a new identity after the struggle with the angel of God at Peniel, Jacob's family situation is worthy of a Judge Judy episode. <laughs> Let's briefly run through what we might call his immediate family. He has two wives, sisters Leah and Rachel, and he has two additional servant wives, Bilhah and Zilpah, who are the servants of Rachel and Leah, respectively. Dominican brother, Father Lawrence Liu, notes that each of Israel's four wives bore him children in a kind of competition. Think about the TV show Sister Wives, if you've heard of it. Altogether, Israel has 13 children. 13 children, can you imagine? And we're going to name those right now, so keep count with me. We have Leah, the mother of the oldest, Reuben. She also gave birth to Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah, the only daughter. So we're at seven. Bilhah, Rachel's servant, entered the picture because Rachel wanted to compete with Leah. Rachel couldn't have children of her own, so she thought, hey, I'll just ask my servant to have the children for me. So Bilhah gives birth to Dan and Naphtali. Then Leah has, by this point, gotten a little too old. And so she's thinking, okay, well, you know, Rachel's servant was having children. My servant, Zilpah, can have children to kind of keep this competition going. And so Zilpah gives birth to Gad and Asher. So we're at 11 now. I'll keep a little one for that. And then finally, Rachel 
was able to bear a child. And by this point, Israel is quite old. And so Rachel has Joseph, the main character of today's Genesis reading. And she's able to have one more, Benjamin, before she dies in childbirth. That brings us to 13 with four different parents. So Joseph has lots of half-siblings and one full brother, Benjamin. I think this is a little bit next level competition. We don't really see this today. I would be shocked if I saw this on Judge Judy. Um, but Sister Wives has something similar, I think. So our story picks up when Joseph is 17 years old and he's working as a shepherd with his 10 older brothers. But when I say working as a shepherd, working as a shepherd, see, Joseph was the family tattletale. He would go and report on his brothers to his dad, lots of other things, and his father, Israel, loved him so much, probably because Rachel was his favorite wife, and he was the first child of Rachel's, but he loved him so much, he gave him a special coat. So sometimes we hear it called the coat of many colors. Today, we heard it as a long tunic with long sleeves, but this was not some sort of ordinary clothing. It's only mentioned one other time in scripture, and in fact there's a very small thread of scholarship which suggests that possibly Joseph might have even been trans, because that coat was only worn by a woman. But it's a very small thread of scholarship and it doesn't have a whole lot of support. Regardless, it is a very special coat and not the kind of thing that you would wear when you're out shepherding. So he gets gifts from his dad, and his brothers, you know, see this, and they're already kind of jealous. And to add fuel to the fire, Joseph is a dreamer. And we're not talking about DACA here. He's not an immigrant. We're talking about the fact that he actually has visions when he's sleeping. Those weren't mentioned in today's scripture reading. It would be way too long. But suffice it to say that in his dream, he sees a vision which indicates that his brothers will all be bowing down to him. So he'll be some sort of um, supervisor, like extraordinaire. And can you imagine if you were one of the brothers or sisters and being told, oh yes, don't worry, one day you're going to bow down to me. So they really don't like Joseph. And I'm not really clear if Israel is just dense and he doesn't get the fact that all the brothers hate Joseph. Or if he's just, you know, being his conniving self and is like, let me, you know, add some uh, fuel to this flame that's already happening and see what happens. So he sends Joseph out to go and check on the brothers. Maybe it was setting up for Tattletale. Maybe it was just checking on the brothers. But the brothers are out in their field tending the sheep. And Joseph is wearing his coat. Remember, this is, this is not work clothes. Um, Delmer Chilton, who has a lectionary lab, live podcast. Hilarious. He's like, this is the equivalent of the brothers going out in a truck in work clothes, and here comes Joseph in Gucci and a Porsche <laughs> to see what's happening. Like this kind of scenario. So the brothers see him going toward them in the field, and they're like, this is our moment. You know, he's been staying close to the house with dad, but he is alone now, and we can kill him. Kill him. You know, that just seems a little extreme to me, but when we read scripture and we hear about all the violence, it kind of fits in with the Old Testament. 
Fortunately for us, the oldest child, Reuben, has a little bit of sense and is like, you know, guys, maybe we aren't going to kill him today, possibly. Maybe we could just like throw him in a pit, an old well. That sounds like a good idea, right? And then we don't have the blood on our hands. And everybody's kind of like mulling it over, and Reuben's sitting here thinking in the back of his mind, if we do that, I can rescue him later and take him back to dad, and then maybe I'll be the favorite son. Seems like a good idea. We don't know that from scripture, but when we look at the attitudes of the brothers, I think that's probably what he was thinking. So he convinces his brothers, we're gonna just throw Joseph in the pit. So they throw Joseph in the pit, and they're like, all right, we're gonna you know, chill, eat dinner, all this kind of stuff. And for some reason, Reuben leaves. Maybe he was tending uh, the flock, we're not really sure. But while he's gone, some Ishmaelites come by. Now the Ishmaelites are sort of um, distant cousins of Israel's family. Remember, they're related through Abraham. So they're coming by, they're traitors, and all of a sudden Judah has an idea. Now Judah is a name you should recognize. Who is the Lion of Judah? Say it real loud. <laughs> lion of Judah, anybody? David. David, yes. Yeah, we hear David, or Jesus, also, often refers to Jesus, too, later. So, very important, right? These are all bringing us into somebody that we claim as Lord and Savior. So Judah, in this story, has this really great idea in the lineage of Jesus, mind you. And he's like, actually, why don't, rather than leaving him in this pit to, like, die on his own, we could just sell him to the Ishmaelites who are coming by, and get a bunch of money. And then, you know, we're not like wasting anything, right? We can actually have some like recompense for this situation. So he convinces his brothers that this is a really good idea. And so they sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, which was the average cost of a servant at the time. And so then Reuben gets back and he finds out what's happened. And he's like, oh no, my brother is gone. You know, and what are we going to do about this? And they just decide, you know, to go with the original plan of coating the coat with blood and telling Israel that Joseph has died. So this is such an interesting story, and I think it is important to really reflect on because Joseph and his brothers become really important people. They become the 12 tribes of Israel, God, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. And so when we look at this story and we see this serious lack of emotional health in this family, we see a father who is enmeshing one of his sons so deeply in um, kind of a gift culture that the other sons come to hate their brother. And we see a son, Joseph, who's so narcissistic that he's bragging about his superiority in front of his other brothers. And we see these brothers whose morality allows them to seriously consider killing their brother and then thinking it's a better idea just to sell him into slavery. These are the people who are the patriarchs of our church. <laughs> God's chosen people. 
And I think about it, and I'm like, you know, God works through some very fallible people in order to accomplish his purposes. And if we follow the tale of Joseph in Egypt a little bit farther, I'm going to jump ahead here just for a second, this is setting us up for the whole basis of the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition. Because he was sold into slavery, that is how the people of Israel wind up getting into Egypt. Joseph goes there, and God's hand rests upon him, and he's able to get in with um, the Pharaoh there and, you know, kind of make a name for himself. And when famine happens and his family comes crawling back to him, they don't know it's him, but his family comes crawling back. We're starving. We need your help and support Joseph has enough graciousness and mercy to say, sure. And not only when this family comes back and presents him with cash to help pay for their food, not only does he say, sure, you know, we'll let you buy these grains, he actually puts that money, which could have been the very money that they got from selling him, he puts that money back in the grain bags and they find it later and realize they actually didn't have to pay for something. I don't know about you, but if somebody was out to kill me and then decided to sell me into slavery, I'm not sure that I could be so generous to be like, sure, you're starving now, let me give you this food. And like, not only that, the money that you wanna pay for the food, I'm not even gonna take that either. I mean, this is, again, next level reconciliation. This is like post-Judge Judy. And this is the kind of story that we see and when we think about Jesus later on, and Judas, you know, what happens there? Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Is that accidental? Maybe. I don't know. But I do know this. When I sit around and think about the jealousy that I have in my own life on occasion, or I think about being not good enough, or wondering if I'm going to have the right words to say on Sunday morning. I go back to stories like the story of Joseph and Israel and these patriarchs of our faith, and I think about, you know, if God can use them, and maybe this is a little pride coming through, like, I'm not really that bad, so maybe God can use me too, right? Maybe God can use me too. And so I leave you with that this morning, and I hope that it is encouraging to you that God uses all of us. God loves all of us, no exceptions, and God uses all of us, no exceptions. Amen.